0: I should like you to notice, by the way, what Galileo says about the Pythagorean and Copernican system of the universe. For he points to my mystery of the universe published 14 years ago in which I took the dimensions of the planetary orbits according to the astronomy of Copernicus, which makes the sun immovable in the center and the earth movable both round the sun and upon its own axis. And I showed... ...that the differences of their orbits corresponded to the five regular Pythagorean figures... ...which had been already distributed by their author among the elements of the world. Though the attempt was admirable rather than happy or legitimate... ...and for which figure's sake, Euclid wrote the whole of his geometry. Now, in that mystery, you may find a sort of combination of astronomy and Euclid's geometry and through this combination, a most thorough completion and finishing of them both. And this was the reason why I waited with intense longing to see what sort of an argument Galileo would produce in favor of the Pythagorean system of the universe.
1: Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet
0: Earth. (coughs) science and technology will be long forgotten,
1: when wizards will rule the
0: This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, and his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Arnamancy. Wow. Wow. Let me congratulate you on having both the courage and the curiosity to listen to this episode. I am Reverend Eric, and you are listening to part five of this podcast's deep dive into Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. If you feel lost and would like to catch up with earlier episodes, you can find them on the podcast's website at arnamancy.com slash Agrippa okay why are courage and curiosity so important for this episode because as I'm sure you noticed from the episode title we're going to be talking about math math and magic
1: mathematical Finn you're terrible at math Ah.
0: I personally have been looking forward to this episode for a long time, but I know that for a lot of people, the idea of reading about and learning about math is a pretty miserable one. Through conversations I've had over the years, it seems like many people feel like they are really bad at math, and many people also seem to hate math. This is a pattern that exists across both occultists and non-occultists, and so When occultists discover how much Agrippa loved math, and how central math is to Agrippa's occult philosophy, they sometimes seem pretty disappointed. If you have a bad relationship with math, I applaud you on listening to this episode, in spite of both your relationship and the title of the episode. I am going to try to change your mind. Whether I succeed or not, I would really love to hear about your thoughts and reactions to this episode, so please feel free to contact me via email, Twitter, or any other way you can find me. So much of Book 2 of Occult Philosophy deals with numbers and mathematics. If you would like to get a head start on the episode, read Book 2, Chapters 1-23. through Now that's a lot, and I think you can probably be pretty well prepared for this episode by just reading Book 2, Chapters 1, 2, 21, 22, and 23. All right, it's time to rip off the band-aid. Let's get started with Agrippa's thoughts on mathematics from Book 2, Chapter 1. The disciplines of mathematics and the like are so necessary for magic that it is professed that without them, Everyone will lose their way. Their work will be frustrated, and they will achieve few desired effects. Indeed, whatever exists and is possible in these more inferiors, natural virtues happen and are ruled by number, weight, and measure. Math class is tough. So what are we talking about when we're talking about math? What does Agrippa mean by this? The fields of study that mathematics includes is vast, but not everything that is considered a part of mathematics in the 21st century had been discovered or invented in Agrippa's time. To Agrippa and his contemporaries, mathematics would have consisted of what Agrippa calls the middle sciences, which means arithmetic, music, geometry, optics, astronomy, proportions, weights and measures... And mechanical arts. Some fields of mathematics were also incredibly important areas of education during the Renaissance. They were represented as part of the quadrivium of the liberal arts and sciences, and these included arithmetic, or the study of number, geometry, the study of number in space, music, which was the study of number in time, and finally, and most loftily, astronomy, the study of number in time and space. The liberal arts and sciences had been a standard part of an education since late antiquity, which means that by the 16th century, there had been about 1,500 years of study. In all that time, what had we discovered about numbers? Like, for example, what the hell is a number? Do they even exist? You might be thinking that these are stupid questions. But why are they so important? Why does my crazy crystal-loving aunt keep posting about 1111 to her Facebook page? So what is a number? Eric Perdue is a traditional astrologer whose translation of occult philosophy was published by Inner Traditions in 2021. If you've been listening to this series already, you know who he is. I asked him about the nature of number and why Agrippa thought that this was so important
1: so basically the number is the foundation for reality to Agrippa that is the way that astro- astrology works from number alphabets work are based on mathematical mathematical ratios and things like that there's liturgical numbers for different spirits and planets things like that so it's it's the underlying framework and the math itself can also describe you know certain Parts of reality, even pre-modern and uh, Pythagorean, you know, type of of mathematics. But I think I think to Agrippa, the most important thing was the astrology, because the astrology is is math basically. But one of the questions that came to mind was he makes a, a throwaway statement that numbers are formal. In well, in the JF translation, he says formal, which is a correct translation. But if you say the word formal, it kind of I don't know, brings to mind a tuxedo or something. What? But what they mean is that is that numbers are part of the realm of the Platonic forms.
0: A number is a concept that we use to count, measure, and calculate. Numbers are all represented by both words and symbols, but they also seem to have some kind of an existence sometimes. I mean... You can talk about one horse. And you can point to one horse. And you can even speak German to one horse. But can you point to one? Can you point to two or three? All of these numbers are really powerful shared concepts. And they pretty much have to exist in some sense for the modern world to work. But they aren't... real at least not in the same sense that physical things are real. So I went to another one of my smart friends and talked to Andrew B. Watt to explain how medieval and Renaissance thinkers considered numbers and why it
2: is so important to understanding magic. We today tend to think about numbers as abstract categories that arose at some point in The development of human beings from apes, whereby we realized that there's this thing called one apple, and then we can have two apples from the same tree. And then if we go over to this other tree, we can find four, five, six. And now we have six apples, and yet we don't have the concept of six separate from apples until someday somebody realizes, oh my gosh, it's possible to count things. Or more specifically, it's possible to count without counting things, right? You don't have to do the count from the Sesame Street thing, who, by the way, is my favorite vampire. It is possible to count without counting things. It's possible to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 without having any one specific thing in mind. We don't necessarily have to be counting pairs of scissors or pens or dice. We can just have number separately from the thing itself. But for ancient and medieval authors, it's important to understand, for anybody who's a practitioner, I think, regardless of tradition, that, that ancient and medieval writers appear to have had a, a sense of number as something that was separate from the physical world right modern cognitive scientists are going to say oh well numbers arose as a as a gradual abstraction in consciousness and we learned how to think about number second after we developed the idea of thinking about number of things or of people or of places but for medieval and classical and even ancient authors Number is a pre-existing category, either created by God or by the gods. And because numbers are real things that are non-physical and non-substantial, they have shadows in the in the physical realm. So that when you see an apple in a platonic sense, you are seeing a, a shadow of an apple Somewhere there is a perfect apple tree, and you're seeing a shadow of that apple. And you are also seeing the shadow of the number six. It's the intersection of these two shadows that causes this thing, this pile of six apples to come into being. But the number six exists as an independent concept. And that concept of six was created by the gods. So that means that a good chunk of Agrippa is taken up with lists of other things that are shadows of numbers. There's light and dark in twos. There are four elements in the, in the list of four possibilities. There are also four evangelists. There are 12 apostles, for example, but there are also 12 tribes of Israel and there are 12 zodiac signs and the idea here is that numbers in our world are shadows of numbers from their world from the divine world that's a very difficult thing i think for modern people to understand that it's not some sort of cognitive process that's happening in our brain but that it is a a, a memorial process in our brains or a a perceptive process in our brains that is is apprehending or understanding the divine world.
0: Okay, we're going to talk about the Pythagoreans a lot in this episode, and I might mispronounce that word every once in a while, so just bear with me. I will try to catch myself. Anyhow, in Book 2, Chapter 21, Agrippa quotes heavily from the Numidian Neoplatonist Martianus Capella when he talks about the sacred numbers of the Pythagoreans. It's interesting to note how the numerical correspondences in this chapter don't really always agree with the numerical correspondences that we will see later in chapter 22. Uh, the cor- those correspondences are one the that, ones that you're probably more familiar with. In chapter 21, Agrippa starts at the number 1, which he compares to the monad and the beginning and the parent of the numbers, and he says that this is associated with both the sun and the sun, and Jupiter. Number two is associated with the world soul, and so belongs to the moon, but it also points to the two infortunes, Saturn and Mars. Number three points to the three fortunes, Jupiter, the sun, and Venus. Number four belongs to the sun. Number five is the sum of the first even and the first uneven number, so Agrippa assigns it to Mercury and the celestial world. Number six, being a product of the first even and first uneven, is associated with birth and marriage and thus belongs to Venus. Number seven, Agrippa says, is a quiet number and nothing is born of it. So it belongs to Saturn. But then number eight, sacred to justice, belongs to Jupiter. However, also... Births in the eighth month do not live, which means eight goes to Saturn. Number nine goes to both the moon and Mars. Ten, the circular number, the number of the Tetractus, which which Pythagoras really loved, reduces down to the monad, so it again belongs to the sun, and then 11 belongs to the moon because it is semicircular. I didn't really get that one. But you can see here that the way that the numbers are assigned to the different planets is really, really different than anything else that we see in Agrippa's work. This emphasis on a numerical universe, governed by seemingly arbitrary numbers, might seem preposterous at first. But if we stop to examine our culture's approach to math and reality, we might find cause to think differently. Maybe Agrippa wasn't so crazy. As Robin Waterfield wrote in the introduction to his translation of The Theology of Arithmetic, In passing, it should be noted that the idea that the laws which govern the universe are numerical is not in itself at all silly. It is not just that we are happy with formulas such as E equals mc squared. These are perhaps different in that they are supported by scientific proof. More significant is the fact that we are happy to accept more mysterious mathematical phenomena, like the Fibonacci series of natural growth, or Bode's law of the distances between planets, and a host of other series and constants. Do we, I wonder... Have the right to praise these as scientific, but condemn the Pythagoreans as irrational? Okay, so why is all of this number stuff so important to magic and occult philosophy? Well, occult philosophy presents a cosmos that is a weird renaissance mixture of Platonism and Aristotelianism. In this cosmos, ideas have more reality than the physical world, and every number is an idea, a real idea. This means that although you cannot necessarily point at the number seven, it exists, and its sevenness is an essential part of the structure of creation. In fact, every number has this same essential nature to it. This is part of the so-called doctrine of the essentiality of number. Number is a part of the fabric of reality. Every number is a form, an idea, that helps shape what is right, true, and perceivable. But even more than that, as an idea, each number passes along some shadow of itself to those things in the material world that represent it. Every carton of a dozen eggs partakes of the same nature of twelveness as the twelve signs of the zodiac. A four-leaf clover partakes of the same fourness as the magic square of Jupiter. There is a quality of likeness and sameness that ties things of the same number together. In a sense, this doctrine of sameness between the numbers of different things in the material world is very much akin to the correspondences you read in Book 1 of Occult Philosophy. The difference is that number is quantifiable. You can easily count the number of eggs in a carton, while it might be more difficult to determine if the nature of a marmot is more mercurial or solar. Here's Andrew again speaking about number and correspondences.
2: The sun's number is six. We find that association in Kabbalah that Tifereth is associated with the sun and that Both the sun and and Tifereth are associated with the number six. And so it was very easy for Agrippa and his colleagues to go around looking at plants and saying, okay, this one frequently comes out with sets of six leaves, therefore it's a solar plant. If it also has yellow flowers, that's two testimonies that this is a solar plant. If it also follows the sun, that's three testimonies that it is a solar plant. If you look at its flowers, and it not only has six leaves, but they sort of form two triangles overlapping with one another, and they thus form a six-pointed star, a hexagram, obviously it's a solar plant. And they're looking for signs and signatures of these kinds of things in order to be able to identify what planet a particular thing belongs to, what numbers are associated with it. They're also looking at when during the year it blooms. Because, you know, if it happens to bloom in June, particularly in late June, it's very likely to be a solar plant because it's coming out into the world at, just at around the summer solstice, like St. John's wort. They're looking for evidence of how to categorize these plants based on number and based on color and sort of framing everything in a scientific way or a They're using different categories of analysis than what we would think of as the norm today. In
0: a minute, we'll see that every planet has a different number associated with it than we saw before. These numbers might actually make a little more sense in a mathematical sort of way, and are part of an internally consistent system. Book 2, Chapter 22 might be my favorite portion of the three books of occult philosophy. It's been important to me for a long time. I feel like I've spent more time copying planetary sigils, magic squares, and spirit names out of this chapter than I've spent with the rest of the book combined. We will be exploring the planetary spirits and seals in a future episode, but right now we're focusing on math. So let's look at the most fun and interesting math in occult philosophy. The magic squares. What is a magic square? I will let Andrew Watt explain.
2: So a a magic square, also called a kamea, is a square that's been divided into a grid inside. And each box within that grid has a number, and the numbers inside the whole square are equal to the numbers of boxes that there are. So a, a Kamea or magic square that is four by four is going to have the numbers one through 16 in it. And all of the magic squares, the, the, the perfect magic squares, as they're called, have unusual characteristics. In any given square, each row and each column
0: adds up to the same sum. Each diagonal adds up to that same sum as well. The four by four magic square for Jupiter is probably the most remarkable because each block of four squares also adds up to the same sum. And if you add up the numbers in the four corner boxes, they also add up to the same sum.
2: The most famous one, and the one that originally appears, I think, in Chinese sources, but is also known in Hebrew, Arabic, and Greek and Egyptian sources from very early, is the magic square of of Jupiter, the, the, the earliest one is the 3 by 3 grid, but the magic square of Jupiter is the next one up, which is 4 by 4 It contains the numbers 1 through 16. Creating new magic squares in Agrippa's day was a, a little bit of a sort of recreational mathematics that you could do on a scrap of paper. There is a process and a trick to it, which I think is described in one of the appendices to the Donald Tyson edition of the uh, Three Books of Occult Philosophy. It is easier to do with a square that has an odd number of squares in it, like the Kamea of Mars, and they also get much, much easier above 10 or even 11. And the reason for that is that there's often only one solution if there's if the grid is only 10 by 10 or less. There's really only one solution to the three by three grid, and you can't solve one at all for the two by two grid because you have the numbers one, two, three, and four, and somewhere in there, you're going to have three and two is equal to five, or you're going to have four and one, which is equal to five, but you're also going to have three and four, and that's equal to seven. So that doesn't work. We can use Kamea as tools for cryptography as tools for making sigils in magic there's actually an emblem and a an a sigil that is associated both with each planet and with the intelligence of each planet that is to say the good spirit and also the spirit of each planet which is sort of the wrathful spirit or the evil spirit of each planet and as as some People probably know who are listening to this. uh, Any magic square that is more than five by five can be used as uh, an encipherment tool or as a, a code making tool.
0: The size of a magic square or the number of boxes along each side is called its order. For example, the moon uses an order nine magic square. The constant repeating sum in a magic square is called the magic constant. The magic constant can be calculated for any square just using its order. The magic constant is equal to the order times the order squared plus 1 all divided by 2. You can find a link to the Wikipedia page for magic squares in the show notes that contains this formula. The magic constants for each of the planetary squares are... Saturn, with an order 3 square, has a magic constant of 15... Jupiter, with an order 4 square, has a magic constant of 34. Mars is order 5, with a magic constant of 65. The Sun is order 6, with a magic constant of 111. Venus is order 7, with a magic constant of 175. And Mercury is order 8, with a magic constant of 260. Finally, the Moon, with its 9 by 9 square, Has a magic constant of 369. As Andrew said earlier, these magic squares can be used to draw sigils, empower talismans, and communicate with planetary spirits. They also contain many mathematical secrets that make them worth every magician's study and contemplation. Andrew has kindly provided files of the various planetary magic squares for you to download and print and use in your practice. You can find links to those in the show notes. The last mathematical topic we're going to discuss is one that most students of the occult probably think of when someone brings up math and magic, sacred geometry. Now, occult philosophy doesn't spend as much time on sacred geometry as you might hope, but Book 2, Chapter 23, has some really amazing bits about it. Agrippa discusses how the power of geometric figures has to do with the numbers used to construct them, as well as the proportions of their lines and angles, and the manner in which they are constructed. In fact, Agrippa particularly focuses on proportion when he says, when we inscribe geometric figures on paper, vellum, or images, they do not act unless by the virtue that more sublime figures acquired by a certain love which comes from a natural aptitude or a similar agreement, inasmuch as they are precisely configured to these. Breaking this passage down, we can see that Agrippa says that properly configured proportions attract virtues to geometric figures through occult or divine love which acts as a binding force. I asked Andrew Watt to say a few words about sacred geometry, and here's what he had to say.
2: That's sort of the idea of sacred geometry that this proportion and other proportions are harmonious and beautiful to the human eye and create a better human experience for ordinary people, and they do magic. You know, in our earlier episode, I ended with the idea that. Magicians are artists. They're people who keep the divine in mind, but also use science and reason and the natural properties of ordinary materials in order to create things and experiences that lift the soul out of what it means to be just made of mud and into the realm of the divine. That's kind of my working definition of magic. And there's something about using mathematics, both number theory and geometry, that makes our work more elegant and more excellent still. And I think it's because we're tapping in to the shadows of the numbers and the shadows of the figures, the shadows of the shapes that are defined by geometry.
0: Once we know what we are looking for, this sort of reliance on proportion, line, and angle shows up everywhere in different magical systems. It turns out that among the different forms of mathematics used in magic, sacred geometry is probably the most accessible and useful for everyday magic.
2: Andrew explains how. So I think that there's a couple of different ways that you that you could use this as a magician. The first of them is that you can look at, say, the Solomonic grimoires. And you can look at the, um, the standard seals. I think there's six or seven seals for each of the, of the planets in, in the Solomonic tradition. Nearly all of them are based on geometric patterns. The only way to draw these things precisely is to know their underlying geometry. It is really, really cool. And I've done this, where you take out uh, you know, you you hear the complaint of somebody else who's in the store, and you realize, oh, they need they need something resembling a a Solomonic pentacle, and you reach into your bag and you draw one right then and there, because you happen to have your ruler and compass with you, and you can do that. So, one, it means treating the ruler and compass as magical tools. And it doesn't even have to be a ruler, it can just be a straight edge, and that works plenty well. But in order for you to do magic with a uh, ruler and compass, you have to know enough geometric processes. You know, it's really nice to be able to draw a pentagon and then, you know, draw your pentagram right inside the pentagon and know that the points of your pentagon And the points of your pentagram are now actually accurate. There is something fun about being able to do that.
0: Before we wrap this episode up, we have to talk about the last paragraph of chapter 23. Agrippa concludes this chapter by confirming that, yes, many wonderful things can be done with sacred geometry. But then he drops a bombshell that goes completely unexplained when he says, I have learned how to make these wonderful things and mirrors in which one can see whatever they wish from a long distance. Thanks, Agrippa. That sounds cool. Want to tell us how? (sighs) Finally, we can wrap up the dreaded mathematics episode. Now, I hope that even if you came into this episode dreading what you would have to learn about math and occult philosophy you have come away with more of an understanding of why Agrippa considered math and number so important. Also, we talked about magic squares and sacred geometry. This wasn't even the hard math. It was the fun math. No matter how important you might think that math is to your practice, you may have also realized that you're already using it and maybe not even thinking about it that way. I hope that now... When a number crops up in your next ritual, or when your OTO buddy starts babbling about Gematria, maybe you'll stop and pay a little more attention. Many thanks to my friend Andrew B. Watt for his help with this episode. He insisted that I interview him twice, and I did. The opening was an excerpt from Johannes Kepler's Deoptrix Containing the Original Account of Galileo's Astronomical Discoveries. Translated by Edward Stafford Carlos. As always, for a full list of credits, please see the show notes. This series of episodes about occult philosophy will most likely last until summer. My Patreon supporters will be receiving each episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials such as full interviews, a glimpse at works in progress, a glimpse at things behind the scenes, and the opportunity to suggest further topics for this Agrippa deep dive. Speaking of this deep dive, I was just pondering the other day that this isn't really a deep dive into every part of occult philosophy, because that would take years. There is stuff on every single page. It would take decades to do a deep dive into every part of occult philosophy. This is more like a deep dive into specific choice topics in the book so you dear listener can get a taste for what agrippa's world and views on magic are like hopefully these little tiny deep dives will facilitate a long and fruitful relationship between you and this marvelous magical work if you enjoy these episodes and want to help support their development and production you can help out by sharing this podcast with a friend let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we are on this journey and invite them to join us. In fact, challenge them to listen to the episode about mathematics. And if you want to contribute monetarily, you can go to Arnamancy.com slash support and find a number of options. So until next time, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing your math homework. I mean magic. Keep doing magic. Ah, ah. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnomancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnomancy.
2: at Urena and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com, and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.